2023 marks the 20th anniversary of the most influential book in the history of sports analytics, Moneyball. This is the story of how the book changed sport forever. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. Early on in Michael Lewis's Moneyball, we're introduced to the idea of the good face. The good face is something promising young baseballers are thought to have. It's not a major attribute, but along with running speed and a good arm and quick feet, upper body strength and height, having the good face is part of the package. Grizzled old scouts talk without irony about the good face. They might not be able to list the ingredients that make the good face good, but they know a good face when they see one. That's good enough for them. Billy Bean, the Southern Californian wunderkind who is the volcanic hero, or possibly anti-hero, of Moneyball, had a good face. He also had all the other major attributes for a promising young baseballer known to man. His height and strength were impressive. He was a polymath, capable of playing basketball and American football to a high standard. His hitting power was off the charts. His running speed was phenomenal. Within the first few pages of the book, Lewis immerses us in a kind of representative scene. Bean and four other promising young Southern Californian stars are being physically assessed by a group of scouts at the grounds of Herbert Hoover High in San Diego. The scouts, stopwatches at the ready, want the boys to sprint. One of the five draft prospects, Darnell Coles, has just received a scholarship to play football at UCLA. Another, Cecil Espy, is expected to beat the other four. They line up on the track, a portrait, Lewis tells us, quote, of studied cool. In the sprint, Bean beats Espy by three strides. The scouts are puzzled by the result. Espy and Coles are widely predicted to take the first two places, with the other three making up the numbers. Bean will be lucky to come in third, they predict, but they are more than puzzled. They are perplexed, so perplexed, in fact, that they ask the kids to sprint for a second time. The kids, their presence at Herbert Hoover High is contingent on them having written permission from their parents or guardians to be there, line up again. The result is exactly the same. Bean smokes the other four. The scouts look at their stopwatches in disbelief. Again, they must now wrap their heads around what they have seen, because what they have seen can't be lying. Here, young Bean stands on the threshold of the kingdom of baseball. Except, he vacillates, he equivocates. He comes from a middle-class military family and his mother prizes education. She would love him to go to Stanford University. Bean himself, or at least part of him, wants to go to Stanford too. He isn't sure. Importantly for the unfolding Moneyball narrative, no one senses Bean's uncertainty. They don't sense it, perhaps, because they are indulging in that age-old sporting pastime, predicting the next big thing. What clinches it for Bean is when the Mets, whose scout has seen him at the track at Herbert Hoover High, come to San Diego to play against the Padres. 
By this stage, Billy has already been picked by the Mets in the draft. He is invited into the Mets dressing room where he meets some of the players. They tell him to get on with it. They've heard all about him and want him around. He even meets their coach. A shirt with his name on it appears and he puts it on. His selection in the draft suddenly becomes tangible. The super talented kid, possessor of the good face and much else besides, has stepped over the threshold. He is now in the kingdom. But is he in the kingdom with all his heart? Part of him wants to keep his mother happy. He asks Stanford if he can attend classes in the off-season. Stanford send him a polite but firm reply. They regret to inform him that, no, this will not be possible. So there you go. His dad is of the view that he has made his bed. He must now sleep in it. Now a Met, Bean gets sent to the minor leagues in Little Falls, upstate New York, before enrolling at the University of Southern California during the off-season. Ominously, Lewis informs us, he doesn't give a second thought to what it means to be a professional baseball player during his time on campus. The following season, and Bean and his fellow rookie, Darrell Strawberry, progressed to the Mets' double-A team in Jackson, Mississippi. There, Lewis tells us, they are introduced not to a different standard of ball, but to a different standard of female. This is the Southern Belle, in all her demure, coiffed, and winsome glory. Quote, Bean played left, Strawberry played right, and the whole team played the field, says Lewis. The fact of the matter is, and we know this already, but Bean never really left Little Falls and Jackson, Mississippi behind. He never left because he wasn't sure of what he wanted to be doing, and he was scared, which is an entirely understandable response to having a sizzling fastball thrown somewhere close to your head at a speed faster than you can blink. He was scared of his talent and scared of his failure. He was even scared of the blithe bluster that allowed him to routinely keep his fear at bay. Most of all, he was scared of the thought that someday someone might look carefully at him and see that he was bluffing. They would look into his secret heart and see a baseball prodigy whose soul and talent were forever at odds. In Moneyball, Lewis shows how Bean takes off for the years, but he never really climbs to the stratospheric heights predicted for him in those early years when he became a Met just out of school. He never soars at the altitudes where baseball gods go. For several agonizing seasons, he does a reasonable approximation of flying, but finally, he can sort of fly no longer. With questions burning in his head, with fears and what used to be called complexes, he returns to Earth. He returns to Earth an angry man, wondering why he didn't please his mother, and why he listened to his father. By the time Bean has become manager of the Oakland A's, this anger has subsided. It hasn't entirely disappeared, however. Bean's anger bubbles inside of him like a seething cauldron of lava. Sometimes it explodes. Sometimes it merely simmers. Sometimes Bean throws chairs through pasteboard walls. Sometimes Bean can get hold of it just long enough to turn it away from himself. When this happens, he is creative. He thinks, how can I turn the Oakland A's around on our limited budget? And how, 
if I don't believe in the good face and the associated stereotypes, can I find a competitive advantage to help us find players overlooked by everyone else? Bean always thought too much as a player. His mind was a canyon whipped by winds of self-doubt. Turn this doubt and anger outward, however, to focus it on the cant, stale pieties and the shibboleths of baseball, and the doubt can be put to good use. Billy looked to statistics to help the Oakland A's. He looked to statistics and a nerd called Bill James and James's all-but-forgotten baseball abstract. In a word, he deconstructed many of baseball's assumptions from selection to statistics, using statistics to do so. He discovered, for example, and here I must apologize in advance for my profound baseball ignorance, that hitting average, one of the statistical cornerstones of the game, was way less important than on-base average. The statistics also proved that picking pitches from college rather than directly from high school was time and time again the smarter strategy. Having discovered such things, Bean set about finding players overlooked by everyone else. Such players might be from Carbuncle Point, Iowa, or the sleepy town of Mardi Gras, Missouri, but it didn't matter to Bean and his new team of scouts. Such players might be wildly idiosyncratic or just plain odd. They need not have the good face. If they had the numbers, he wanted theirs. Such suspicion about baseball's complacent scouting assumptions coincided with the rise of the internet. The nooks and crannies of the net were the perfect place in which to secret arcane baseball knowledge. Recruiting some Harvard graduates with good statistical and legal brains, Bean trawled the statistics. He increasingly came to disregard the sage old scout's advice. They were has-beens, relying on a sly blend of superstition and know-how to get them through their days. Armed with a couple of laptops and some printouts, the Oakland A's began to govern their behavior in the draft and their behavior in the marketplace generally on what the number crunches and the statistics told them. They threw questionably subjective notions like the good face onto the scrap heap of baseball history. In this way, Bean underwent a kind of redemption. With the good face and the great physique, Bean once embodied all the necessary attributes like few other young baseballers of his generation. As managers, Bean and others overturned the very knowledge that it held him as a young player in its grasp. His revolution was revenge. Revenge on the system he loved, but also revenge on the complacent claims that system had over him as a player. Those claims weren't fair, he was saying. There were better claims, claims based in the hard data of statistics. And who are we to argue, because under Bean and Bill James's abstract, the Oakland A's became not only wildly successful, but wildly observed. Quote, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, said Oscar Wilde. Many teams, including the Boston Red Sox, adopted the A's method and found it very much to their liking. As a result of the book Moneyball, there was the film with Brad Pitt as Bean and Jonah Hill as Paul de Podesta, Bean's chief boffin. The book and the film's insights traveled across the Atlantic. Managers, 
coaches and scouts began to think that some of Moneyball's conclusions might be applicable to their sport. Football and rugby began to be engulfed in statistics, meters run, assists, successful passes. Other sports did too. The advantage of rooting your match analysis or acquisition strategy in so-called hard facts is that they brook no argument. If you, as a manager, suspect that your box-to-box midfielder hasn't been running enough, you look at the numbers to justify hauling him off after 47 minutes. If he gets stroppy, you point to the screen. The fetishization of numbers in sport finds expression elsewhere in everyday culture. In the last 20 years in the developed world, it's become all about numbers in every facet of life, from education to healthcare to pharmaceuticals to performance appraisals. Numbers run our lives with their iron quantitative hand. Both in the events it describes and as a book in its own right, Moneyball is very much an artifact of the cultural moment. That moment is best described in the form of a question and answer. If the question is, quote, how can we, as a poor club, maximize our chances of competing against the rich guys? The answer to that question is as follows, quote, you can use the obtuse science of numbers as your new foundation, overturning the knowledge of grizzled old dinosaurs called scouts. The story is told through the figure of Bean, an interesting fellow. We're all familiar with heroes and anti-heroes, but who of us have heard of pre-heroes? Such guys were heroes before their time, which kind of compromised their heroic quest. In the Moneyball story, the hero, or the pre-hero, never quite makes it, but never quite makes it just enough to still be respected. This respect gives him the power to initiate a strategic revolution. He brings in the intellectuals and the nerds, a cultural and media staple, since Dustin Hoffman bumbled around in Rain Man in the 1980s, the autistic savant who could rattle off the square root of 15,678, but found it slightly more challenging to squeeze his own orange juice in the mornings. And so, post-Moneyball, with all the early adopters and evangelists, we now have Moneyball dogma. Every smart guy in a baseball cap and a laptop associated with a club or team is wildly influential. Trades and buys are based on the numbers. Stars have become commodities. The smarter of the clubs dig around in the about-to-be-traded players' past. They are chasing the holy grail of, quote, character. There are numbers for that too. We now have Moneyball orthodoxy, which leads to the suspicion that too much faith is vested in the data. Numbers are always partial, because they are always part of a story. Numbers mean nothing in and of themselves. Andre Pollard's kicking average from the 45th minute of the World Cup quarterfinal against France was stupendous, but it was only stupendous because South Africa beat France. He came on in the 31st minute against England in the semi-final, and again, he was magnificent, magnificent enough to play in the final. His numbers, however, are numbers in a story. That story is the story of the Springboks' defence of their World Cup crown. His numbers might have been only slightly different in the story of Springbok failure, and they would have been deemed irrelevant. Conversely, they could have been exactly the same in a Springbok defeat at any stage of the knockouts 
and they would have been deemed irrelevant too. The dividing line between numbers that mean something and those that don't would appear to be thinner than we are comfortable accepting. Bean and Lewis would presumably say that they have the best numbers, the most powerful numbers, the ones others never accorded the weight they deserved. True, but even such numbers need the scaffolding of story. Without story, the numbers are simply motes of dust on a raging wind. So let's not be seduced, as many are, into thinking that sport is reducible to the numbers. How, for instance, does one quantify memory? Memory in a sportsman or woman is that ineffable, difficult-to-quantify thing that no one but us sports writers with the institutional memories of elephants seem to notice. Take J.P. Dumini, the former Proteas left-hander, for example, and his performances against Australia. It all started for Dumini in Perth in mid-December 2008, where he scored 50 not out in a remarkable South African fourth-innings victory. See the Luke Alfred Show episode 4 on the slow death of South African Test cricket. For Dumini, these were 50 confidence-boosting runs on debut, because in the next test, in Melbourne, he went on to score 166, coming to the crease when the Proteas were 132 for 5 and losing Mark Boucher with a score on 141 for 6. South Africa won the MCG Test 2, winning the series. It was the first time Australia had lost a series at home for 19 years. Dumini struggled after such stellar beginnings. He became susceptible to the short stuff and found that test cricket wasn't as straightforward as it appeared to be. In his 46 tests, he only scored two test centuries at home where he might have been expected to do better. Strangely, he seemed to leave his best for Australia. In November 2016, back in Perth, where he had made his debut eight years before in a magnificent victory, he scored 141. He scored only six centuries in his entire test career, and three of them were against Australia, with two of the three happening in Australia, that enduringly difficult place to score test tons. What does one make of such curiosities? Can they be converted into an algorithm or a formula? And if so, what would the memory formula look like? Dumini's test average was a workmanlike 32.85. His test average in Australia, however, was 47.77, better again by a third. Sport caters for many human needs and impulses. One of them, I suggest, is mystery. Dumini's entire career, when you think about it, was a mystery. His peerless record against Australia was a mystery within the greater mystery of comparative underachievement. Sometimes a mystery is best left alone to remain being a mystery. We don't need it to be explained by the numbers, although, of course, there are always people who want to try. It was in the Western Hotel in Melbourne in 2008, within walking distance of the MCG, where Dumini scored his 166th, that I read Lewis's Moneyball for the first time. I loved it. It told a compelling story rooted in a clever narrative arc. I've often felt like a bit of an outsider in the conformist and anti-intellectual world of South African sport myself, and James, with his science of sabermetrics, 
was nothing if not the outsider's outsider. Bean was a pre-hero hero, but he was also a kind of insider's outsider. The entire book was about how the outsiders stormed the castle walls and sacked the empire, what wasn't there to enjoy. In time, I've become a little bit more skeptical of Moneyball. My skepticism takes several forms. My first quibble has to do with the gentle purring of the smooth Lewis style. Take the following representative sentence found on page 52 of my copy. Quote, Billy's failure was less interesting than the many attempts to explain it. I'll read that sentence again. Quote, Billy's failure was less interesting than the many attempts to explain it. There's a fateful imprecision to this sentence. If Billy's failure really wasn't interesting, then it presumably wouldn't have inspired the many attempts to explain it. That others attempted to explain it surely gave lie to the fact that Billy's failure wasn't interesting. Uninteresting failures remain just that, uninteresting failures, which suggests that Billy's less interesting failure is not quite as uninteresting as the slick sentence makes out. Moneyball is, in fact, a book devoted to the trajectory of Bean's uninteresting failure, so it's quite a claim to make that his failure was less interesting than the many attempts to describe it. That there's quite a bit of this Malcolm Gladwell-type imprecision and hollow neatness in Moneyball isn't finally that important. It's a long time, after all, since I dusted off my copy of F.R. Levis's The Great Tradition and got out my textual tweezers to pluck a dubious sentence or two off the page. What is important is to suggest that to reduce sport to numbers is to make it shallow. Such a gambit robs sport of some of its mystery. Mystery is close to hand for all Springbok rugby fans. How is it, they have asked themselves for weeks now, that the national rugby team could win three knockout matches in the World Cup by only one point? The answer to such questions won't be found in the numbers, but they might be found in a story. For this, finally, is one of the important reasons why we love sport. It tells us a good story, and we are never averse to a good story. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow, and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays, and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. 